Hello, I'm Anne Flaherty. This interview is part of a series of one-off interviews for the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith, London. For the past 25 years, the centre has delivered the most diverse Irish cultural and educational programme outside Ireland. As part of its cultural remit, the centre provides a platform for Irish authors to launch, promote and discuss their work. Today, I am delighted to welcome Declan O'Rourke. Declan is an award-winning singer-songwriter originally from Dublin. His music has been praised by people like Paul Brady and Paul Weller, and his songs have been covered by Christy Moore, amongst others. In 2017, his album, Chronicles of the Great Irish Famine, documented rare first-hand events from that devastating period of Irish history. Today, we're going to start the conversation about Declan's literary debut, a novel called The Pawnbroker's Reward, which is set in the town of McCroom and the surrounding area in County Cork in July 1846, just as news reports are coming in of a blight in the potato crop. The book has been widely praised for its subtlety in blending story and fact, and broadcaster Pat Kenny described it as a fantastic piece of work. It's already climbing up the bestseller charts. Declan, thanks for joining us this morning. Hello. Um, how are you? Are you are you in Canvara? Are you coming to us from Canvara? I am indeed, yeah, west of Ireland. Very good. Um, Declan, I wanted to ask you, how did the book come into being? Uh, I mean, I mentioned you had written songs, uh, uh, including a, a very popular um, song called Poor Boy's Shoes in 2017 as part of your album, The Chronicles of the Irish Famine. But can you tell us the, the, the wider story behind your interest in the famine and how it led up to this book being written? So 20, almost 21 years ago, um, while my mother and some of her siblings were doing some family research, they came across my granddad's birth cert. He was from this part of Galway in Canberra, and they found that he'd been born in the workhouse. Um, nobody knew what that meant. We were all quite intrigued. And I set myself a kind of a goal to find out more loosely, you know. But some some months later, I was passing through Easton's in O'Connell Street and literally happened upon uh, one of those baskets full of a book called The Workhouses of Ireland. I couldn't believe my luck. And um, I just thought there's my my opportunity to find out more. At that stage, I had no idea that the workhouses were anything to do with the famine. I didn't know much about the famine. Uh, and I don't remember really learning much about it in school. I remember it probably being mentioned, but no particular details at all. Um, and I got on the bus on the way home that evening. I was sitting upstairs and I remember opening the book and you know, by the time I'd read the cover and that, I, I could tell that the genesis of these institutions was that period of history, the famine, which was, you know, nothing to do with how my granddad was born there 80 years later or so. But it was it was the lifting of a lid on that period of history. But most of all, what shook me and what drew me into it was on page one, I came across the story of the Obukla family. 
and uh, this incredible human story about this young family who had exhausted all possibilities and options open to them. They'd gone to the workhouse and within a few short weeks, the two young children had died. They'd all been separated in there. And at that point, the mother and father communicating through Irish because they weren't supposed to communicate, uh, decided to leave. They got word to each other and they left. The wife was gravely ill and, and was probably sick with, with fever or typhus or something. And uh, they, they began the walk home towards their, their little cottage or buhan, for the want of a better word, which was six miles distance. And after a very short amount of time, it was uh, recounted by, by a neighbor of theirs. She couldn't walk anymore and he began to carry her on his back. They were spotted doing this along the way. And he carried her for the guts of six miles on his back, back to this um, little home of theirs. And they were found dead the next morning. And the husband, Padraig, was, was found kneeling on the floor with his wife's feet held to his chest as if he'd been trying to warm them, the neighbor said. And, you know, that, <clears throat> that, that, the image of that was so, so moving for me, so powerful. It, it was full of tragedy, of course, but there was something else to it. And um, it took me a long time to really figure out what I felt at that moment, I think. But it was beauty. There was a lot of beauty in it. And, you know, it, it was almost a triumph over everything that had happened to them and the most dire circumstances imaginable and to be brought to the point where all you had left to give your loved one was the warmth of your body and then to give them that too. You know, in spite of everything, it, it's kind of a triumph of, of humanity and, and of love, you know, and I, I thought it was... Uh, a universal story. I thought anybody in the world who read that could not help but be moved by it. I was also, there were so many emotions and feelings and thoughts all rolled into the same moment, I think. But one question was, why have I never heard this before? How how do we not know this as a nation? And even further afield, it's, it's like uh, a a tale of almost, I mean, tale is a strange word to use, but because it's real, you know, but of, of kind of Greek tragedy proportions, you know, Shakespeare would have, you know, thrived on, on, on a story like that, a scene like that. And, um, but as a, as a young songwriter at that point, which was, you know, around the year 2000 or 2001, I was still maybe three years away from my first record, but I was voraciously writing and, and part of a scene um, and just cutting my teeth, I suppose. And this was really something that I I've, I've felt instantly I wanted to share in song. 
and I did, and it led to a whole collection of songs, which I took I took my time with over many years. It took me seventeen years, but that was the first song, really. Um, it took me seventeen years to finish it. I wanted to make sure. I, I actually thought, and I was sure that the academics would rip me to shreds for for um, encroaching on such a, a serious subject in in song. Um, in in the end, it turned out that. It was. I had a lovely experience where they kind of embraced me with open arms when I brought it out. I've become very friendly with a, a lot of them. Um, but you know, after that, I was sure that I was finished with that subject. I'd spent so long on it, took my time with it. I made six other albums while I was kind of concentrating on this in the background as a kind of passion project, you know. But when I finished and put the lid on it, sure that that was that subject covered. I couldn't have been prepared for the the things that started to happen after it. Uh, one of which was that I, I played a concert in Skibbereen 2018. So about six months after the record came out. And after the concert, I was approached by a lovely man uh, came to talk to me and he said his father came from about a mile from where the Obukla family lived. And he was, you know, quite sentimental about his father's memories of the area. And and uh, we, we had a nice conversation. And at the end, and we talked about the townlands, which which are, you know, for, I'm not sure outside of Ireland if people know what townlands are, but in the countryside, even, even growing up in Dublin, I wouldn't have had a clue. But they're literally the names of crossroads and little areas within rural areas where, you know, you have no numbers on your doors or anything, but the postman will know what a townland is, you know, uh, and, and they go much further back. But it's a very, it's like a widened spot in the road, essentially, you know. Mm. And um, I asked him if he'd ever heard of a townland called Dirali, mm -hmm. which I knew the Ubukla family had come from or had lived in. And um, he just said, leave it with me is, is the way he left it. And within a day or two, because I was staying around the area, I got a phone call to say that man has uh, made a few phone calls and he called his first cousin, who called his first cousin, who spoke to somebody in a shop on a corner and <laughs> what have you. And eventually they connected with the man who owns the land where the remains of the Obukla's ruin or their, their cottage was exposed by a gorse fire a few years ago. And it was, you know, I was first of all blown away to to hear that anything remained of their existence after Indeed. all that time. And after me singing and talking about it for 17 years and trying to, ex you know, exhausting any source of trying to find out more about them and finding nothing all of a sudden i was going to be brought to see this place you know and uh so they drove me out there was, you could have never found this place on your own and you had to cross through people's land and everything and uh and eventually we had to get out of the cars and they they said we're going to have to take shank's mare now which i didn't know as at the time which apparently it means on foot so we went on foot and we found ourselves climbing this hill and at the top of this hill 
you, you look for miles around and all you can see is beautiful pastured land sweeping out in every direction you know but at the top of this hill there was this for some reason they had left the, there was this outcrop of rock like a ridge was kind of overgrown around it and and on one side was this little footprint of a, of a house literally maybe no bigger than your smallest bathroom you know tiny and 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 that was the place and we stood there and it was the most profound experience you know and uh they asked me to sing the song i'd written about them which i did and i felt, I felt very naked without a guitar but it felt strangely appropriate and uh the man who had approached me and who brought me there and who'd set this whole thing up, he hadn't told me at the time. He turned out to be the parish priest of Skibbereen. And uh, so I, in turn, asked him, would he say a few words? And he did. And it was very, very moving, very powerful. And I, I, I walked away from there just thinking that this story was not finished with me yet. Um. And I, I had learned things that day standing up there that I could have never imagined or, you know, yes. at the time I was writing the song, you know, the guy who owned the land, his family had been there for generations, you know, and he said, he said, when you stand up here, if you stood up here in the wind at night, he said, it would skin you alive. It's so exposed to the elements, you know, and you could just get this very tactile sense of what it must have been like to to live there, you know, with with so little and so in the way of facilities or mm. any kind of luxury, you know, and um, and 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 around the same time, I was approached by a publisher, Gill, who had heard me promoting the record on radio, and they contacted me and said, "Would you come in and have a, a meeting with us? We we loved." the passion that you seem to have built up on this subject and the amount of knowledge you've built up over a number of years. And we would like to explore if you'd like to expand it into book form. So those things coming together. And last of all, a third element where I had accidentally written a short story about a month before I would woke up one morning and planned to write a song and I had the date to myself and it never happened before. But I, I, at the end of the day, I ended up with a 20 page story, which I really enjoyed. And um, Declan, was that story connected to the famine or was that something completely different? It was actually more like a childhood memory, it would be closer to you could call it more of a memoir than anything else. Mm. But um, it was prose and I, I just really enjoyed it and I felt it was OK and it made me go from never having any ambition to really move from songs into prose to uh to to feeling that I could do this you know when when that call came mm. and um it was like a, a nice little magic meeting of of circumstances that it so certainly it seems so from as you say from originally finding out about your grandfather and the workhouse to then discovering the book in Eason's and becoming captivated with the Obukala family story uh, and then actually writing the songs and going to the place where they where they had um where they had lived I mean it is an extraordinary it is an extraordinary 
uh, tale. Um, what you were saying there about not um, wondering how the academics would view you writing uh, about historical events. Um, one of the things that struck me when you said that was that while there have been very many books written about, you know, the famine and all the rest of it, but um, the human element, I suppose, the human stories are what draw people in. And that's very much the case here in, in the pawnbroker's reward. It is the story of um, Podrick and Koch and their children and the des their desperate plight, which makes it more real for the reader. I was wondering why um, you introduced the character of the pawnbroker and could you tell me a bit about uh, Cornelius Creed, who uh, who's a central character in, in the book as well? Sure. So as I began to try to find out more about the Abukla family, you know, and what options were available to them, how did they survive as long as they survived? And basically, I was attempting to to gather as many facts as I could and to put the pieces back together. And, you know, that led me into archives and newspaper archives. And uh, within, within within a short amount of time, I started to find these other people in the area of McCroom. And, you know, it's very interesting what you said there about the human element and how that has a, the power to draw us in. And I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think if I had have picked up any other book on the famine, at that point in time, when I, when I first came across the workhouses of Ireland, this this that collection of songs and the book itself might not exist, because in all the books that I've ever read on the subject, I was I was never struck more than when I when I read that story, and it really set the benchmark and it, it set me on a path of trying to find similar accounts that were so detailed because, you know, with the greatest respect to the historians and the academics who who have done so much brilliant work on, on, on the subject, sometimes what they had to work with was very meager. And some of the accounts from the time are almost they're almost mythical or they don't seem real, you know, because they're, they're, they're kind of written in a, in a, a, I wouldn't say a foreign dialect, but a different kind of way of speaking from back then. And they've probably, which that period of our history just suffers from being a little bit more disconnected than things that have come later you know, such as world wars, you know, we have, there was better technology, we have images and things to, you know, but um, I'm almost going off on a tangent here, but I hope it'll eventually feel relevant, you know. The, the, the lack of accounts, you know, as, especially because most of the poor 
spoke in Irish yes. uh, were illiterate, essentially. That doesn't mean to say they weren't educated or they weren't intelligent. They just didn't have the facilities of reading and writing, I would, I would say. And so, so little. And, and then there was also the silence after. So, you know, a lot of what we know are stories that have been passed down through generations and they've been colored and, you know. Um, and so getting back to, to Cornelius Creed, as I started to explore in this area, I I I, I started to find accounts, you know, and... I felt as as I began to know people in the area, such as Cornelius Creed, who who popped up as an early source, you know, and he began as just a source because he was somebody who was corresponding with the local newspapers mm. and he was attending these meetings of the poor law guardians in the workhouse, which was a kind of a, a, a bird's eye view into what was happening at another level of society there and local government and, you know, the, the, the effects were trickling down, you know. Um, but he started to become, the, the more and more I found of his writing and the more I began to learn about him and to, you know, it wasn't just he wasn't just relating information in a kind of journalistic way. O over time, you could see him developing as a writer and becoming more, much more like something we would uh, encounter in, in the modern realm. He started to write opinion pieces to the newspaper and he was venting his own feelings. And as that happened, I started to get to know him. I started to become invested in him and attached to him. And he, he, he went from being just one of a series of people who was popping up to becoming very, very central. Because not only was he giving this information and, and real feelings that were contemporary at the time, but he was so centrally located. He was at the center of town. The Abuklas were six miles out and all of these people like them were traveling in and out, you know, but he was like at the eye of the storm, you know, literally because he was a pawnbroker, the poor were crossing his doorstep every day. He was also, he was a middle-class Catholic. Yes. Which there was a layer. Yes. You know, and so he was in a, he was in a very difficult position himself because he was, really, really invested in in what was happening to the poor below him of his own kind of people, if you like. Mm. But he also was interacting with the, the Protestant ascendancy. Yes, he was. Um, and he was he was seeing what was happening at every level and relating that to us. And I've I figured, you know, that I couldn't have found a better person and I'd never come across anybody like him in all the years reading on the subject either. And it, it led me to the point of kind of feeling that I had the opportunity to do something I don't think had been done before or I haven't come across it in this field. And that was to show people how this thing unfolded through the lens of a single town.
Yes, the community, uh, representing all the layers of the community. Because I, I don't think you could have maybe sustained a whole book with the Obukala story. Um, this this then gave it much more a broader context, didn't it? And and I suppose by using Cornelius and his uh, and the um, reports of the meetings of the the guardians of the workhouse, you were able then to put in that historical fact of how they were thinking. Um, and at the same time, you know, Cornelius as as middle class, but also a person with the conscience. Um, how that uh, either the, you were able then as well to contrast his lifestyle with their lifestyle, so that they, those poor people were existing on a little bit of cabbage. And you know, there's one very um, uh, striking moment where he goes to a birthday party with his wife, and you describe oh, you know, all the the food and the relevant, the warmth and the comfort that they are living in. And I thought that contrasted really well then with the, the, the poor who were doing the backbreaking work, walking miles to break stones every day. They were docked money if it rained. They might have one piece of griddle bread to eat for the whole day. Um, and, uh, and, and so there was that contrast, you know, obviously between the, the different lifestyles. So the whole community is represented in the story. Yeah, uh, uh, that that made his position all the more complex, didn't it? Because he had a, he had a guilt complex, I suppose. You know, and uh, that ma- made made his his personality all the more fascinating. And, and he was a beautiful writer too. You know, it was real intellectual, and um, I actually think from having got gotten to know him. I think he was what we would class these days as probably a little bit on the spectrum. He was almost high functioning, I think, and a little removed at times in, in, in certain elements of his personality, but obviously deeply caring in other ways, you know. Um, I, I was personally fascinated with him too. And uh, and it, it it became, as you say, essential that he, um, I was just kind of following the dots and the breadcrumbs and putting it together. And I couldn't not have him central in the end, you know, and it, it, I started to see it as the book as like this tree that maybe came from the one root, but had these two big branches. And one was Creed and his kind of what was happening around him and the Obukla out a little further out. Hmm. Um, I just wanted to ask you, Declan, about uh, the difference between songwriting and tackling a, a big historical novel like this. How did you go about writing it? How did you go about researching it? And w- were you mainly writing it during uh, the, the lockdown? I'll start at the end there. It's a, very, it's a great question. Um, I began the book around mid-2018 after the experience with visiting the Abuklas cottage and and speaking with the publisher and that. But it really with with other work, touring work and young family here, things like that, I was struggling for a while to to develop a, a really solid routine with it. And uh, 
But uh, as well as that, I was also experimenting at a certain point with 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 uh, styles of writing, and I had a few kind of early chapters that were from different parts of the country, and they were almost like short stories that were going to be connected, and they didn't end up being included, but. In in the end, I realized they were essential for me figuring out what I wanted to do. Eventually, I was drawn very specifically towards the Abuklas, uh story and going back to the source of what inspired me on this subject. But really, when lockdown kicked in in 2020, I had actually gone away a week before that and I'd said to my wife, I'd said, I'm, I'm literally um, going to apply myself really, really uh, with, a, with a serious discipline from here on in, you know. And I went away for a week and stayed in this little cottage in Mayo, belonged to my aunt and uncle. And it was during that week that lockdown happened. But from that point on, until we'd say... June this year, when when we submitted the final finished manuscript to the publishers, I almost never missed a day. And I locked myself in a room every day for a minimum of three hours. By the end, it was sometimes there were like 10 hour days or 12 hour days. My wife was pulling the hair out saying, you know, she started to describe it as the other woman, you know, because I'd go into this room and I'd be just gone. But, you know, I, I absolutely thrived on that and I, I've never had the opportunity or the experience to immerse myself so deeply in anything mm. so consistently for so long. I actually got uh, T-shirts made for me and my editor who came in uh, to the process early this year, you know, but and the T-shirt says I spent lockdown in 1846 because mm. it was kind of true, <laughs> you know, but um the, the big difference and the only real difference I found between songwriting and this kind of writing was that you had to physically put yourself in a place and, and have a, a strong routine like that. You know, mm-hmm. with songwriting, you can do it anywhere. You can be doing it on the go. You don't have to sit at a desk because... They're so short, you can literally remember the words in your head. And a lot of the times when I write songs, I invariably don't, you know, I, t- I take notes, but I don't write down the finished thing. I don't touch an instrument even until the song is finished in my head. But with the book, because it's so much more dense and so it's it's just colossal in terms of its length and breadth by comparison. I knew I had to sit down. You can get your inspiration when you're walking around or when you're in the garden or in the bathroom or whatever for a certain scene. But literally, you've got to dig into the research and you've got to sit there and write and write and write physically. And uh, yeah. Sorry, I was just thinking that, um, well, two things, I was thinking two things. One, you may not have ever got around to writing it if you'd been touring, um, which I don't know, perhaps some of your I mean I'm sure a lot of your gigs were cancelled because of the lockdown um and um 
I've forgotten what the second thing is. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. The first is plenty for now. Um, <laughs> well, that, uh, the, the fact that you had that time to sit and do it, uh, it was amazing, you know, and it's kind of a, a gift in, in a way, you know. Oh, oh, yes, I know. The second thing was that it struck me that um, when I was reading it, that terrible sense of, of things being out of people's control, you know, events which external events happening, which were controlling their lives, things they, they couldn't control. It reminded me a bit of, of our own experience with the pandemic, really, you know, that the things are happening that you can't control and you're struggling um, and it becomes about survival. And, you know, I wondered if maybe that might be part of the um appeal to people at this at this point because uh you know i think that people can identify with that struggle do you know what i mean i do indeed and i i do believe there is an accidental parallel there you know and maybe it's helping it to resonate with people more i'm not sure mm. i'm not sure because i guess before they pick it up they don't know that they're going to feel that that resonance so i'm yeah. not sure but you know it's interesting you 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 brought that up because my editor for a start in at one of our launch events he said that he didn't feel that this book could have been written at any other time and he felt mm. that he felt that somehow the pandemic and the similarities of of as you say very very aptly use great words to describe it that you know the the loss of control and things being out of our control um he thought that filtered into the book and i, I found it interesting to hear that but i knew that was not the case because you know what I wrote was literally a transcription of what I was experiencing and reading in 1846. It was nothing to do with what was happening around me. Or, you know, I think it was absolutely accidental. Not accidentally, yeah. coincidental, you know. Yeah. Um, well, for example, um, I, I felt that at the very beginning, particularly where Cornelius Creed, where it opens up, where he is looking at, at reports coming in of potato blight. And he, you know, has that feeling of, oh, I hope this isn't going to get worse. I hope this isn't going to. And at the same time, Porrick is out there with his potato drills and he's absolutely terrified to dig them up because he's, he's worried, you know, um, of what he might find. And so I suppose in the same way as we, as, um, you know, a community, uh, every time we hear of oh, something to do with, with a new variant or whatever, we worry and we panic. How are we going to get over this? So uh, those were the kind of elements that, that, that I thought were um, similar to what we're going through now. You're certainly right. You're absolutely right. And, and I think Connor was right too in that, it is very palpably similar, you know. There, 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 there are certain echoes within the mm. two, um, and I find that fascinating. Um, it's, it's, it is interesting. 
and um, maybe, as you say, maybe it's helping people to identify it with with it, uh, yeah, or have an empathy certainly for that. Yeah, absolutely. Very yeah. devastating period and what people went through, because uh, as as we know, the book uh, is based in eighteen forty six. So as you know, there were several more years to come of of potato blight, and of course, the start of the whole emigrant trail then after that and you you have your own experience of emigration isn't that right because your parents went to Australia when you were a young a young lad um can you can you remember what that felt like having to leave Dublin yeah I was 10 and you know from my perspective people sometimes ask what's it like to have you know the same question and really I think not. I don't know any different, if that makes sense. So, but it, it was incredibly normal for me in a way, because as I said, I don't know any different. It was kind of a a fairly smooth transition, and yet I know what it's like to be the outsider arriving in a new place. We came back four years later, and even then, I felt like an outsider and. To be this kind of foreign body in the soup, mm -hmm. if you if you know what I mean, and there are certain things you have to do, certain mechanisms you do to blend in, and uh, things like that. So I absolutely understand it, but because I'm white, it was very easy for me. You know, I I I only have a small taste of what it must be like for somebody in in much more difficult circumstances you know mm -hmm. we came from ireland in the in the 1980s it was 1987 and there was a recession going on here and there was there was actually a call in the in the newspapers my my parents responded to this i guess uh, um my my uncle who's been out in australia or at that point in time had been out in australia for maybe 25 years had just come home and visited for the first time and so there was a gate open to us there we you know uh, we were kind of told we were welcome to come and uh, but the 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 call in the paper was, you know, they were looking for tradesmen and people with education. And my father was a carpenter. And uh, so given that there was a recession and times were hard, even though he had work here at the time, they saw it as an opportunity for a better life for their children. And uh, they 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 took it and gave us that opportunity. We, we all have Australian passports now, which is which is uh, a lovely advantage to have. But, you know, it's it's just a taste of what it must be like for people who have to do it. I can't say I relate to that, if that makes sense. Um, but I can imagine it. And, you know, I I think it's it's a huge huge issue in in the modern realm in and something that the world is struggling with very badly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On a positive note, of course, Declan, um, it was when you went to Australia that you got your first guitar, 
and started to play music. And again, that's a very kind of random thing. There seems to be a lot of coincidences in your life. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? I can't. That's it on the wall back there, actually, behind me. Um, well, my my parents were visiting some friends of theirs. Uh, well, let me put it. It's, it's always complex to try and say, but when you when you're abroad, this thing happens. Sometimes you get letters from somebody saying, "Oh, such and such from up the road is living mm. out there," and that happened. And we yeah. became friends with, or my parents became friendly with this couple who they probably never met or would have associated with at home when they were living up the road. But, you know, we became very friendly with them then. And they had an uncle uh, up the countryside, out and, out and kind of really out in the sticks up by the Murray River between uh, on the border between New South Wales and Victoria, a place called Kyabram. And he was a parish priest um, up there, a Catholic parish priest. And I think we went up, my parents would kill me for saying this, but they were getting some marriage counselling that <laughs> were weekend. <laughs> Thank God, I think it worked, obviously, and, you know. But um, we were up there for the weekend. Uh, and I suppose that was part of the whole immigrant thing. There's, you know, my mother was very homesick and there was... We were running up big phone bills and, you know, there was a lot of t tension around things like that. And um, which eventually led us to coming home four years later, as I said. But that weekend, anyway, we stayed in this house. And there was a young priest. I now know the word for it is he was a deacon. And he had a couple of guitars lying around, one of which is hanging behind me here. And I snuck off a couple of times and, you know, I loved music and I, I kind of hid away in a room with this guitar on my own or something. I just was holding it and trying to figure out what to do with it. And th this young priest came along and he showed me two chords. And uh, that was lovely. I remember he showed me C and G. And that was it. And that, But then on the Sunday when we were leaving, we got in the car. We were just about to pull away. It happened to be my 30th birthday, which I don't know had anything to do with it. But as we were about to pull off, he ran over and tapped on the window and he said, oh, you left something. I think this belongs to you. And he gave me that, you know, which I still very moved when I think about that, because it was what a gift. And, you know, he, he changed my life in a way. Yes. You know, yes. so. Um, do, 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 do you know if he's aware of the you know, the trajectory of your career since then, Declan, at all? I'm not 100% that he's aware, but I do know he left the priesthood and got married. Okay. Lovely for him. And uh, his name was David. I, I always remember that. But I don't know anything more about his life since then. I'm um, sure you'd be amazed to, to find out now that you're kind of an international singer-songwriter. It would be nice, and I'd like uh, I'd like to think that he would uh, be proud of mm -hmm. himself, I suppose, and knowing that a, a small gift can go a very long way. Absolutely. No. And just on the uh, music career, then obviously you've finished uh, your, your book and you're promoting it at the moment, but you also have a new album out 
called Arrivals, isn't that right? Which was produced by Paul Weller. And again, some of that deals with the immigrant experience because that actual title song, uh, you um, mm. you were playing the piano um, in the video uh, at the railway station and, and, and at the airport, you're talking about people coming home having after that long separation from their families. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. The, the song Arrivals itself was came out of my own experiences uh, spending lots of times in airports, either arriving or, or leaving. And and one particular time recently when that same uncle came home from Australia again and I met him at the gate and I was standing there for a while uh, waiting for him to come out, him and my aunt. And uh, I was watching all these other people jumping on each other and hugging and you know and it was really profound uh, uh, these days i don't often get to be the person who's waiting for someone i'm mm -hmm. usually the guy coming through mm -hmm. so it was a lovely uh, you know eye into that that part of things and to see other people doing it. i believe a lot of people do that uh like a train spotting kind of hobby thing now I've learned since I put the song out and I can understand why because it's very life affirming to stand there and watch people it makes you really appreciate what you have you know um you but mean it, they go, go to the airport and watch people arriving yeah just to... and watch, watch them reuniting and and the, you know the, that kind of I suppose it's a portal you know that that particular place where people come through and Mm. meet their relatives and loved ones again you know and it's particularly uh, at the moment i think because uh because of the covid pandemic and um you know we have the brief, brief periods of time where people can travel and then there are more restrictions and i suppose coming up to christmas as well you know that's a song that would resonate with a lot of people especially you know those who've been separated um i was just wondering if if um now you're planning to uh, go touring again or whether you're waiting to see what restrictions there be and whether you might also turn your attention back to writing another book or continuing with with the, another famine story. That's a lot of questions, but it's Sorry. good. Great, <laughs> great. Um, I, I have toured already. I had a, a tour of the UK there uh, about a month ago. Well, I'm back maybe two or three weeks now. And it was really, really enjoyable. I have an Irish tour in March. That will be the first real. Uh, I had a couple of small shows uh, locally here in Galway just before the, the UK tour, which turned out to be a great kind of, they were really, really enjoyable and turned out to be a great kind of springboard into the tour as well, getting the machine back up and running. But mm. I'm looking forward to the shows in March. Um, and in terms of writing another book or more books, I absolutely feel like I have the bug now because it was, you know, I think you always feel like your latest thing is is the thing you're most passionate about. Um, but certainly I feel writing this book was the most enjoyable thing I ever did. And I, 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 I've opened Pandora's box in some shape or form, you know, I realized while I was writing it because I didn't 
I wasn't playing music, obviously, during the pandemic, certainly not publicly. And I played a bit of flamenco here for uh, kind of hobby's sake. But creatively, I was really, really so um, engaged with the book and consumed by it that there was no room for music. And I didn't miss it. I didn't miss writing songs. It's the first time in 20 years that I wasn't chipping away at songs in the background, you know? Mm. And I realized it was kind of a revelation for me that I'm just a creative person. I, I, after all those years identifying or calling myself and believing I was a songwriter specifically, I now know I'm just a creative person. You know, because I used to draw a lot in, in early life and at a certain point it was it was a choice between playing music and art. Mm -hmm. Um but any of those things and I think they they spiritually they kind of tick the same box, they do the same thing. And creativity is just something you do that makes you feel centered and kind of zen. I think it doesn't matter what, what you're doing to achieve that. I think, um, you know, certain people believe and it's easy to sometimes get caught up in in being confused about art and creativity being the means to an end and that you hope to achieve something at the end of it, which is success or wealth or fame or whatever, but really those things are all secondary and ultimately if you don't enjoy the work as you're doing it in every moment over minutes or months or years or whatever then the rest means nothing anyway mm -hmm. and so um i'm very much excited about the prospect of writing more and i want to write another book soon and another album soon and, and who knows what else so mm -hmm. Well, it's a fantastic achievement and uh, I enjoyed reading it very much and wish you the best of luck. Look forward to your next offering. And uh, I suppose for now we'll have to say goodbye and hope we'll see you sometime in maybe in the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith, London, whether it's talking about your next book or whether whether it's playing music. We'd be delighted to see you. Sounds great, Anne. Lovely to talk to you too. I very much enjoyed your questions and glad you... Glad you enjoyed the book. Thank you very much, Declan. All the best for now. All the best.